The following exhortation was delivered on January 3rd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Mr. Zachary Groff delivered this message entitled Christ's Call to Renew Love for God on Revelation 2, 1-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What is the best birthday or anniversary or holiday present that you have ever received from anyone? I imagine whatever that gift was, you ended up telling everyone about it for some length of time after receiving it. I'm thinking especially of the children that I know well in our midst tonight. You want to go out and tell everyone about what you got for whatever holiday or birthday or celebration that you had the privilege of getting gifts. Perhaps you still bring it up whenever the conversation gets around to gift giving or special occasions. We do this in our family. I just did this with my mother a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the gifts my father used to give. They were that memorable, even if they weren't always particularly special. To change up the illustration somewhat, if, if you're married here tonight, I know there are many uh, married here tonight. You ladies remember the moment when you received that engagement ring, don't you? You remember all the details, where you were, how your husband proposed, what posture he took to propose. It was a special, glorious moment. Again, a couple of, uh, just last week, a prospective student at the seminary, he proposed to his uh, now fiance on New Year's Eve, and he sent me the video of it because he had his friends taking a video, and he was that excited about it, and she was that excited to receive such a gift. Surely, you could tell me all about that moment And even if I pressed you about it, the distinctive charm and beauty of your ring, such is the nature of our attachment to especially precious gifts. And so it ought to be. In the first chapter of Revelation, some of which I read, we read about an especially precious gift that John the Revelator receives while exiled on the island of Patmos off the western coast of Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. This gift is a complex, awe-inspiring, and at times distressing vision of the great spiritual realities that lie just beyond our physical sight. At the authoritative direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, John then records this vision, this gift which he's received in the form of a letter that he then circulates to the churches of his region with whom he maintained contact. He addresses seven of those churches, which we read, beginning with Ephesus and progressing to Laodicea, in particular with custom-fit messages that, though concerned with spiritual trends and issues uh, particular to their day, yet are very relevant to the church throughout all ages and time and are very relevant to you, Antioch Presbyterian Church, and to each of us as individuals. As we consider these letters in a series that I'll be conducting um, in my time filling the pulpit here for the next few months, I want you to receive them as they are written to you for your instruction, encouragement, and also reproof. Not as if they are written to you, but as they are written to you. Because you are the intended recipient, aren't you? Consider from whom these letters come to us. They do not ultimately come from John. They certainly aren't from Zach or Dr. Piper or somebody else up here. Ultimately, they come from the Lord Jesus Christ 
described in stunning language and imagery in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20, language that will reappear in each letter in part. In this first letter to Ephesus, the ultimate originator of the letter is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is, to explain it, the one who is sovereign over the church and its ministry and ministers, the angels, its messengers, and the one who is ever present with us and aware of all that transpires in, through, by, for, and against his church and churches in all ages. He gives these letters to us through his word, protected through the ages, and handed down to us by faithful ministers in every era of the church. What I will seek to show you today from this initial letter to the church in Ephesus is that Christ calls you, his church, to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. Christ calls you, his church, to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. We will unpack this call under three divisions present in the letter to Ephesus. First, Christ's description of the church. Then second, Christ's direction to the church. And third and finally, Christ's determination of the church or for the church. Again, those three divisions of the letter are very simply, so you can follow. Description, direction, and determination. Description, direction, and determination. First, let's consider Christ's description of the church. Christ says that he knows the church's nobility and he knows the church's wretchedness. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly about this church in Ephesus. It has a rich history under the ministry of Paul, Timothy, and now John, and so it really has much to commend it. There is, there is a great deal of nobility in this church, of good. It has a strong record of gospel witness, denominated here in our text by the words, your deeds and your toil in a city full of challenges to the truth of God, including pagan worship, booming commerce, intrinsically connected to idolatry, the making of little figurines and idols, a strategic location under the scrutiny of Roman rule, this church has demonstrated perseverance and endurance in the faith. This church has heeded Paul's words to its elders many years ago and recorded in Acts 20, verse 31, to be on the alert against evil men and doctrinal compromise. They have withstood both of these threats to the church over many years. So as we consider this church's nobility, before we move to the rather obvious uh, wretchedness of the church, as we consider its nobility, we should ask ourselves, where is the zeal for the truth and purity of the church of Christ? Where is our zeal for his truth and purity? In our day, consider how the church is beset and assailed and attacked from the left and the right by all manner of enticements and opposition. Evangelicalism in our country and even around the world is rife with pragmatists selling us on fads and dubious methods for church growth. Trust me, being involved in a church plant, I've seen it all. And there's all kinds of pragmatic advice. If you do this, you do it because it works. You'll fill the pews. You'll increase your budget. You'll get a big building, whatever the case may be. And then different sectors of the church are held captive by consumerism and seeker-sensitive Christianity or whatever. And then social justice and critical race theory and, and egalitarianism. And then all kinds of perversion and political idolatry 
which again hits the church from the left and the right. Oh, how the foundations have crumbled underneath our feet in American evangelicalism. And in the midst of this, let us, like, the, like our forebears in Ephesus, let us resolve to stand steadfast in the faith. This is, part, this is a noble feature of theirs. Let us acquit ourselves like men, as Paul exhorts the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, in our resistance to the falsehood and compromise pressed upon us by our present evil age. And we can do this only by the Spirit of Christ who motivates us by His love, which brings us then to the sad wretchedness of this church in Ephesus. The same Christ who knows the Ephesian church's nobility likewise knows and describes for us and for them its wretchedness. I use that word intentionally because of the, the depth of description here. There is a fatal weakness, and yes, a wretchedness at the very heart of this church. It has abandoned or forsaken its first love for God in a place full of competing claims on its affection. It's not merely that it's forsaken its first love, but it's that it's done so in a place that is uniquely dangerous to doing so. Let me illustrate. This, is, this situation here is something like a, um, consider a charming newlywed wife full of beauty and youth and vitality who, after a short honeymoon, separates her husband with no intention of pursuing either a renewal of relationship or a definitive divorce, and then moves into an apartment building full of eligible bachelors her age. How can faithfulness be maintained in such a situation? This might sound ridiculous, but aren't there movies that take this very premise and put it up as seeking after your true self? And don't we know people who have, who have ruined themselves by putting themselves in situations like this as well? How can faithfulness be maintained? Well, in the bustling city of Ephesus, the temptations to spiritual adultery are so great, and the challenges to the Christian faith are so numerous that this church is on the brink of disaster. Returning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, they may be steadfast and strong, acquitting themselves like men, but they have neglected Paul's admonition in the following verse. Let all that you do be done in what? In love. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pause now to take stock of our own love for God in Christ. Let us examine ourselves. This is a good time to do it. It's the beginning of a new year. Do you remember, thinking back, do you remember that initial flush of enthusiasm and excitement for the Lord when you were first converted? The darkness receded before the light of God's glorious salvation in your life was unalterably changed, perhaps, at that time, you experienced a deliverance from particular life-dominating sins like alcoholism, gambling, or promiscuity of some kind. Perhaps you achieved for the first time what's described for us as that peace which surpasses all understanding. For me, I used to get these devastating migraines multiple times per week while worrying about things, and upon my conversion, those migraines disappeared. Now, I know plenty of godly men and women who experience migraines on a regular basis, so I'm not saying if you have migraines, that's a sign that you're not converted. No, far be it from me to say such a wicked thing. But what I'm saying is that in my own life, there was this radical change in my very experience of living day to day that took place. And I would imagine that for each of us here, 
There is something of that, a tasting and seeing that the Lord is good if you've been converted in some manner as a teenager or an adult. And then I think I have, uh, I've had no more than probably a dozen headaches of any noticeable intensity in the last 16 years, just to give testimony to the goodness of God in that area of my life, even as we pray for others who suffer from uh, chronic pain of whatever kind. Now, perhaps you were one of those new converts who at the time filled your inside pockets or filled your purses with tracts and gospels of John to give to everyone you met and to leave in public places. Um, not so relevant down here, but where I'm from, I would find all over the place on the, the subway and on buses and at bus stops, I'd find little tracks, most of which were pretty good and some of which were left there by Jehovah's Witnesses and weren't very good at all. But uh, may we never let the Jehovah's Witnesses be more zealous for their legalism than we are for the grace of God in Christ. Or perhaps you are a child of faithful Christian parents and you've never known a day outside of the saving grace and lordship of Christ. If that's the case, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But surely, surely if you've had any length of time in discipleship and as a believer, whether you were converted late in life or whether you were raised in a covenant home, you have experienced those ebbs and flows that each of us, that every believer experiences as we make our pilgrimage through valleys of darkness and despair and even over mountaintops of spiritual experience and excitement. So examining yourself this evening as you sit here under the ministry of the Word in what is a faithful Bible-believing church, ask yourself this question drawn from the reading of the law this evening. Do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength? Let's be honest. If you're being at all honest with yourself, the answer to this question is going to be no, not with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But can you say that you love him more than you did at first? Do you love him more or do you love him less? This is one of the questions we ask when we go out and do evangelism using the little survey instrument that I have, is if someone claims uh, to believe in God, we ask them, is he more or less important to you now than he was in the past? Now this question directed to a Christian is more pointed. Do you love God more or less now than you have in the past? If less, why? If more, why? Either way, ask yourself at the beginning of a new year, what must I do then? Where can I go? To whom can I turn to to cultivate a deeper, more fervent, more steady love for God? What must I do? Now as a church, ask yourselves this. Have we abandoned our first love? I know we're in our infancy as a reorganized church, but you might visit the website and see the new history page I put up and read about the history of the church and all of its ups and downs and ebbs and flows and ask, have we abandoned our first love? This church has been around for a long time, since 1843, and it's incumbent upon you, and especially upon the elders, provisional or otherwise, to examine regularly the spiritual condition of the church as a whole to determine whether or not its love for God is waxing and enlarging or waning and shriveling up. Here are some sample questions that might be used in an evaluation of spiritual health of a particular congregation. First, are the members of the church consistently attending public worship? Second, are we praying together as a church? Third, are we making intentional efforts to publicize the salvation and lordship of Christ to our neighbors and surrounding community in some way 
however seemingly small, insignificant, unnoticed, and ignored? These are the kinds of questions we should ask. Notice, it's not how big are we? It's not how many billboards do we have? It's not how many hits have we gotten on our website? It's not how much money has been put into the offering. No, the questions are more at the heart. Do we love God as a church? You see, the love which the church in Ephesus had lost was its love for God, demonstrated in faithful obedience and sincere believing, which motivates gospel witness and service to others. This was a church, consider its pedigree, planted by the Apostle Paul, pastored by the evangelist Timothy, and in correspondence here with John, the revelator, whom I believe was the Apostle John. If Ephesus could fall into a state of such spiritual downgrade, declension, and danger, so too can Antioch, or even Calvary Presbytery, or the PCA, or the OPC, or the Free Church Continuing, or the ARP, or whatever denomination that we, each of us, have been involved in in our lives, the URCNA, whatever the case may be. And if upon examination you are alarmed at the spiritual condition of your own heart, or of your church, what can you do? Christ does not leave us wondering. He doesn't leave us wondering. He gives us clear direction as our Savior. He calls the church to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. So having received Christ's description of Ephesus and the church there, we now must receive his direction to the church. Christ's direction is threefold. Um, you'll note I wrote in the first one in the outline because for whatever reason it missed, uh, I missed it while typing it up. But Christ's direction is threefold. Remember, repent, and renew. Remember, repent, and renew. The first part of Christ's direction to the church in Ephesus is to remember your first love. The church in Ephesus had left its first love. And by Christ's direction to remember, we can gather that this leaving that they perpetrated included forgetfulness of God's covenant mercies and the response of faith and zeal God's mercies elicited from them at the first. See, remembrance is the first step on the road to covenant renewal of renewing and sustaining the individual believers or the church's life-giving relationship with God. If we think back to the law of Moses, one of the express purposes of the Old Testament's system of sacrifices and feasts and Sabbaths mediated through Moses was to cause Israel to remember the mighty deeds of God in saving them out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 6.12, shortly after what we read together in, out of the law, Moses exhorts the people as they prepare to enter the promised land, and he says, Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This act of remembering is as crucial for the well-being of the new covenant church as it was necessary for the prosperity of the old covenant nation of Israel. What does remembering God's goodness look like in the individual's life? Call to mind your first grappling with your conscience, burdened by sin, and how the Lord saved you and brought peace and joy into your life. Call to mind the faithfulness, perhaps, of parents or pastors or friends in your life, and how the Lord made himself known to you through their godly influence. Maybe call to mind those seasons of your life where you had particularly fruitful times in the Word, together with his faithful admonitions, 
link also his promises, which he has faithfully fulfilled in your life. Remember your first love. That's, that's the simple command here. Remember. Remember his faithfulness to you, and even and especially when you were faithless in your calling as a Christian, or before you were converted and you were a sinner lost in death and darkness. You know, in marriage counseling, uh, when a couple is struggling with conflict or disagreement, and unmatched expectations, do you know what many, many pastors will ask pretty early on in the counseling process? I just saw this in watching some videos for a class of uh, counseling sessions uh, for training. The pastor will ask uh, to the couple in his care, what first attracted you to your husband? What first attracted you to your wife? Why did you marry him? Why did you marry her? In fact, in premarital counseling, young couples are more and more making lists of things they love about their soon-to-be spouse. Then, when the times of conflict and opposition come, they have a journal or a diary or at least a list full of delight and love and fond remembrances for the person that they are squaring off against in that heated moment. Do you imagine that it is easy for such a couple to remain opposed to one another if they are actively calling to mind the things they love about each other? I suppose it's not impossible, but I imagine that if you actually open up that journal and take a look, it'll be a, a little less easy to be quite so angry at your loved one. The dynamic is much the same in our spiritual lives when God seems far distant and our hearts are chilled by disinterest or distraction or even disappointment with his providences. But by remembering his love for us, in Christ Jesus, his love for you, beloved, grounded as it is in eternity past, and our love for him, which flows out of it as a response to his saving grace, we will immediately draw closer to him with receptive hearts and minds, being led by the hand by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, the second part of Christ's direction to the church in Ephesus is to repent, to repent. In particular, Christ calls this church to repent from its abandonment of the way of life. When Christ directs the church to repent, he directs it to turn away from its course of death. It's veered off to the right or to the left, perhaps toward legalism or toward licentiousness or whatever. And he's saying, no, stick to the straight and narrow. Turn back to the way of life. Repent unto the way of life. This is not essentially different from the initial repentance unto life experienced by every new convert experienced by each of us upon our conversion. Together with faith, repentance is a necessary part of conversion. We believe this to be true as taught by the Bible and immediately follows upon the new birth. Having been given a new heart, you are then graced with faith as a gift and also repentance as a gift. Westminster Shorter Catechism helpfully defines repentance unto life as a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a a, sen a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. However, as is made obvious in verse 5 of our passage tonight, repentance is not a one-and-done kind of deal. We are to live lives of daily repentance. Not only are we to confess our sins to God and to those whom we offend seeking forgiveness, but we are to repent daily of our sins. If you're not living lives of repentance, 
actively forsaking sin, even as it creeps upon you and occasionally overtakes you, then are you living as a Christian at all? I repeat, if you're not repenting daily, are you living as a Christian at all? That's the question being put to the church in Ephesus. The overwhelming witness of Scripture and generations of the church is a resounding no. We are to live lives of daily repentance unto Christ. Christ calls sinners to repentance, and he calls the church on earth to repentance as well. Now, the third part of Christ's direction to the church in Ephesus is to renew the deeds that you did at first, to um, specifically to renew those first works. And what does this direction entail uh, in, in, for the saints in Ephesus in John's day? Well, we can look at or can at least consider Acts chapter 19 to find out. In that chapter, we find the narrative of Paul's church planning activities in Ephesus while his colleague Apollos takes the church in Corinth. At the outset of the church plant, Paul baptizes 12 Ephesian disciples into Christ. He engages in active disputations in the Jewish synagogues of the town, and eventually he establishes and maintains a school of Christian theology and discipleship. And all of this is in Acts 19. In Acts 19, verse 10, we read, This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then Paul's apostolic ministry was likewise confirmed by miraculous signs recorded for us, such that, in verse 17 we read, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. There was a purging then of occult religions and sorcery. They had a big old book burning of their magic books, and they destroyed idols and stopped buying idols from the local silversmiths. And in verse 20 we read, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Notice how the narrative in Acts 19 highlights three times for us the effect of Paul's Ephesian ministry on the surrounding area, that is, before a watching world in need of the gospel. Those first works motivated this effect, inspired it even. And what was at the heart of this? What was the essence of their first works? Those deeds done at first. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 20, we read Paul's farewell speech, which gives us a clue. His farewell speech to the elders of this beloved church in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he says to them in Acts 20, verse 35, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Christ called Ephesus to a renewal of this kind of sincere love for God which then motivated energetic gospel witness, true discipleship, and also deeds of service to the weak, both within the church and outside the church. Insofar as the church in Ephesus had abandoned its love for God, it evidently abandoned or forsook evangelism, discipleship, and Christian service. There's no sign of Christian love or charity at all. Christ calls them then to renew these works in the renewal of their love for God. Renew these works in their renewal for love for God. Are these not the works of the church just in general? 
The church is not a, a fallout shelter or a pillbox or a fortress in which we can hide out from a hostile world which rages around us seeking to devour and to destroy. The church is not a political party or movement with specific aims and goals for political and social transformation. The church is not a country club fit for tea parties and golf outings. Don't get me wrong, there are places for fallout shelters and fortresses. There are places for political parties and for Christ-honoring social activism taken by individual churches or individual Christians in association with one another, not churches. And there are even places for country clubs, tea parties, and of course, for golf outings. But the church is not meant to be any of these things. That's not the church's function. The church's mission and function is to do what? To make disciples of all nations, motivated by the love of God. That is what Ephesus did at the first. That's what we see in Acts 19 and 20. And that is what we are to do at all times, especially at the genesis of a church reorganization or church plant. May these be at the forefront of our minds, the glory of God and His directive to us to evangelize, to disciple, and to serve out of hearts of love. And at the base of it is the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We must consider the stakes. And Jesus puts the stakes in front of us. There are dire threats and also blessed rewards on the line here. Up to this point in our passage, Christ the Lord, the head of the church, who's intimately involved in and aware of everything that goes on in the church, has described the spiritual realities on the ground in Ephesus. And he's laid out his directions for reform even. And now he lays out his determination of the church's spiritual destination, his judgment. In doing so, he issues a threat and a promise. He begins with the threat of covenant disruption, or more simply and painfully put, the threat of divorce. He begins with the threat of spiritual divorce. Toward this end, notice the image he uses. He uses the image of the removal of the lampstand in verse 5. This is the lampstand of the church's vitality in Ephesus. This is the lampstand that manifests itself in those gifts to the church described in Ephesians chapter 4, namely ordained leadership, those stars in the hand of God. When we consider Christ's threat to remove the ordained leadership of the church, we're not talking merely about the termination of a particular pastoral relationship or call, but the removal of any kind of ordained ministry or leadership at all. In other words, the church will cease to be a church. As such, it will disintegrate into a loosely connected group of acquaintances or maybe family members who once shared in the delights of Christian fellowship and nurture under the ministry of the Word, but no more. And this is what spiritual divorce looks like. If the prospect of being robbed of the ministry of the Word and sacrament does not rattle you, it does not terrify you even, then there is cause enough to seek the Lord's help to rekindle your affection for Christ and His truth. Consider how this is playing out on a wide scale right now in our culture. Perhaps the most spiritually devastating reality of 2020 was the speed and readiness with which many so-called evangelical and Bible-believing churches forsook the ministry of the Word and Sacrament. Now, the noblest churches took care, and they may have even suspended public worship, corporate gatherings for a time, but were those who arranged to gather again as soon as it was practicable and reasonably safe. 
Notice what I'm not condemning. I'm not condemning taking a break for the sake of safety. Or if there happens to be an outbreak in your congregation, as I know there was at Palmetto Hills and at Reedville and Woodruff Road at Second Pres and a couple other churches, to take a week off to stymie the spread. I'm not condemning that. No, I'm talking about those semi-permanent shutdowns, which we notice and hear about in the news. I fear for the souls of those physically healthy men, women, and children who yet delay to gather together on the pretense that the government will penalize them or their pandemic will somehow ruin them. And they, even while doing it, maintain a certain nonchalance about the entire situation as, as if it is no big deal to be holed up at home tuning into broadcasts of worship services on the television or the computer. Now, I've known many dear saints over the years who now have gone home to glory, who for years were homebound because of chronic disease and pain and illness, and wanted nothing more than to be with God's people. And if they were here and they saw, and they saw the example being sent by certain prominent evangelical leaders, they'd be aghast. And now we have entire churches shut down for months on end with no good reason. Bringing this home to our text here, we must consider if there's any remembrance of love for God, if there's any sincere repentance, if there's any renewal of the works of love, there will be an alarm at the prospect of losing the lampstand of the ministry. This word from Christ, this threat, would alarm any sincere believer in Ephesus. Only the lifeless corpse in a house fire would not rouse itself at the blaring of a fire alarm. Likewise, only the loveless congregation of rank hypocrites would not rouse itself at the blaring of Christ's alarm in our text today. If you knew that something you were doing, or perhaps something you were not doing, would lead to the failure of your church, of this church, would you seek out a remedy? Would you seek to correct course? Would you change at all? What can we do? Well, there's been a lot of harsh sayings and reproofs, uh, reproofs in this text. But with the threat laid bare, Christ closes his message, he closes his letter with the glorious promise of eternal life. Notice, in the paradise of God, that is, with God himself to the church. This glorious promise to you, the church. Christ has already told us what to do. Remember, repent, and renew. And he does so in a manner full of promises harsh and dire as the threat of spiritual divorce may be, so much greater is this promise of eternal life with him in his paradise. Now he prefaces his promise with an encouragement that the doctrinal faithfulness of the church in Ephesus is of great value and fully aligned with him. Why does he do this? In verse 6, notice, he declares, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, in answering this question of why he puts this here, we should first ask who the Nicolaitans are and answer that. The Nicolaitans were wicked influences on Ephesian culture, and particularly on Ephesian spiritual culture and religious life. Uh, they were known to be engaged in all manner of lasciviousness, superstition, idolatry, and sorcery. And so to the credit of the Christians at Ephesus, the church there utterly rejected and opposed the cultural fad of the day embodied by the Nicolaitans who sought to intermingle pagan practices with a form of Christian sayings and vocabulary. The church would have nothing to do with the degeneracy of the Nicolaitans. They would have nothing to do with this uh, 
with this rank wickedness. In fact, they rejected it, and in so doing, they pleased their Lord. Jesus Christ was pleased that uh, they hated what he hated. Aren't we called to hate what God hates and to love what he loves? Even as we seek out remedies to the church's lack of love and and our zeal to foster love for God, this is an ever-present danger to compromise with the culture around us because there's so much pressure, especially in evangelicalism, there's so much pressure to demonstrate your love for God by being effective, whatever that means, in evangelism. And so on the way to try to be effective, there's many little compromises with the culture made along the way until you end up with some kind of rank, unrecognizable so-called church, which doesn't bear any resemblance to the church as described in the Bible. But our evangelism, our witness, our discipleship, our service, and even our growth must be grounded on the true knowledge of the true living and risen Christ. And so Christ reiterates that for them. He puts up a guardrail before they even get underway. Having brought this promising encouragement, how they are aligned with him on this score, Christ then concludes with the promise itself of eternal life with God. The one who hears what Christ's Spirit says to the churches and overcomes the dangers of lovelessness and hypocrisy shall gain access to the tree of life, which is in the middle of God's paradise, God's home. Whereas the threat of divorce is pictured by deprivation of spiritual nourishment, the removal of the lampstand, the promise of life with God is pictured with this picture of eating from the tree of life. If you've started reading the Bible again on January 1st, you've probably already read Genesis chapter 3. Why does God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden explicitly? What's the explicit reason? He says, lest they eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden, and live forever and become like us. That's the explicit, immediate reason God kicks Adam and Eve out. They've sinned. They now know good and evil. And he says, lest they eat of the tree of life and become like one of us, I must push them out of the garden. Yes, they've become obnoxious to his holiness, but this is what he tells us in Genesis 3. And then here in Revelation chapter 2, the reversal of this in the promise of the gospel and of faith is that they, you, can eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of his paradise and dwelling with him for all eternity. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise to the church in Ephesus. If it would but hear Christ and heed his words, what Christ came into the world to do and what he accomplished to ransom sinners enslaved to sin, it clears the way to the tree of life. The cherubim are parted. The flaming sword stops its swinging and dissipates into thin air. And the way is clear then. For ransomed sinners, once enslaved to sin and that set free to serve the living God, can walk that way and partake of the tree of life, but by the grace of God, or but for the grace of God. What a precious gift this is. You know, if after this service, during our fellowship time, uh, back here in the back room, we all sat down around that table. I think there's too many people here tonight to do that. Praise the Lord. But if we all sat down around that table in the back, and we asked each other, what is the best gift you've ever received? What would you say? Say Legos. You say a doll or a teddy bear, maybe a new car or a house or perhaps your wedding bands or your engagement ring or whatever it is. 
Or could you tell me about Jesus? Could you tell me about Jesus? Is he of more worth than jewels and pearls, of Legos and building blocks, of cars and boats, puppy dogs and kitty cats, even engagement rings and marriage certificates? Was there any hesitation in your heart in answering yes to that question? When I asked you what is the best gift you've ever received, did something else come into your head first before the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation? If so, then I plead with you to examine yourself and to heed Christ's call to the church in Ephesus and to us this evening. Christ calls you, his church, to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. Repent of your unbelief, however marginal it may seem, however minimal it may appear to you, and throw your entire self on to Christ in faith. What little unbelief you may have that you may yet harbor in the depths of your heart, in the darkest recesses of your heart, is in fact perilous to your soul and to the church. And if you're a regular attender here, a prospective member here, or even a current member of this church, your unbelief is a peril to this church and her health. That is what Christ is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. But the man or woman of God who is wholly committed to Christ, whose heart is filled with love for Christ, is a great asset to his church and has the necessary motivation to propel forward the cause of Christ in his church and in the world. Is this your desire, to be used mightily for Christ's glory in our day? And remember his saving work, which culminated in Calvary's bloody cross, the empty tomb, and the glory of the ascended Christ. Repent of your hesitation to claim him as your prize and the prize of your life. And by the same Spirit who brings remembrance to mind and repentance unto life, renew your zeal and fervor to Christ who saved you, the church and its members, who saved you, who made you into the church, and renew your zeal and fervor for his mission given to you, the church, the mission to which he's called you to go and make disciples. Christ calls you, his church, to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. Will you heed that call? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.